0: The Biden administration is considering undoing the Trump administration's approach to accusations of sexual misconduct on campus. Uh, I hope they don't go back to the Obama administration's kangaroo court approach, where women were always believed men did not have an opportunity to challenge their accusers and where there was no cross-examination and no fair process. Let's hope that the Biden administration's proposed process comes closer to the Trump administration's fair process than to the Obama administration's outrageously unfair process. On the Der Show. It was just announced that the Biden administration is going to consider Consider rolling back all the protections that the Trump administration accorded uh, young men uh, in colleges and universities who were accused of sexual misconduct against uh, young women. I say young men, young women. It could be a man against a man. It could be a woman against a man. But it is generally a young college boy is accused by a young college girl of sexually inappropriate conduct, ranging from anything, from a brutal rape to a misunderstanding about consent to uh, verbal harassment. Uh, We know that there is a range, range of uh, sexual improprieties uh, of which uh, young people have been accused and careers have been destroyed. Uh, Students have been driven out of college. Some have been driven to suicide uh, and mental illness and other uh, uh, terrible consequences on both sides of the equation. Um, And so the Biden administration is considering rolling back uh, what the Trump administration did. A little bit of history. So the uh, Obama administration basically changed all the rules and said to any college and university receiving any federal funding, which means every college and university, essentially, look, you're going to lose your college funding unless you make it easier, much easier, for a woman to successfully accuse a man of sexual uh, misconduct. You must eliminate the presumption of innocence, essentially. You must eliminate the rule by which you must find against the man by clear and convincing evidence. It's enough if you find a preponderance of the evidence. Um, In other words, if it's 50-50 and a feather drops on the scale in favor of the woman, 50.1% to 49.9%, that's enough to convict, expel, and destroy a career something utterly inconsistent with the way our justice system operates when serious issues are at stake. Criminal justice, uh, other very high-value considerations. And, and this is the most important one, you will lose your federal funding if you allow the accused person to cross-examine the accuser. Cross-examine the accuser? The most fundamental right any accused person could have Was William Blackstone who said uh, at the time of the founding of our Constitution that cross examination is the greatest engine for determining truth ever invented by humankind? It goes back to the Bible in the book of Daniel, where we see effective cross examination of false accusers and an innocent woman is saved from execution by effective cross examination. But the Obama administration abolished cross examination. Now, you might say, What do you mean abolished it? Yeah. They would not allow a university to set up fair procedures. For example, Harvard Law School. I taught there at the time, 50 years. We had a procedure. We're lawyers. We're pretty darn good lawyers. We had a procedure for determining whether or not a sexual assault had occurred. And it included some degree of confrontation and cross-examination, and it included a criteria for conviction more than a mere preponderance of the evidence. It required clear and convincing evidence. In other words, the burden of proof is on the accuser, not on the accused. That's the way all legitimate legal systems operate. Obama came and said to Harvard, you can't do that. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. We don't trust you. We don't trust Harvard University, Harvard Law School, to set up procedures by which they will judge their own students. If you dare, if you dare to require clear and convincing evidence, if you dare to give the accused student the right to cross-examine the accuser or the right to have his lawyer cross-examine, or even some some mechanism for confrontation and testing the truth, if you do any of those things, you lose your federal funding. Okay, Harvard Law School might say, we could lose our federal funding. We don't get a lot of federal funding. But if Harvard Law School does it, Harvard Medical School loses its federal funding because the university gets cut off. And the Harvard Medical School could not survive without federal uh, funding. And so the process was coercive, intimidating, uh, and, and required universities against their better judgment, against their concept of academic freedom, to follow the mandate of the federal government. In other words, Obama determined exactly who, exactly how, exactly in what way accusations would occur. And, and, and by the way, there was no calibration. It really didn't matter if you were accused of telling a dirty joke or if you are accused of gang rape. Uh, no difference. Uh, a sex crime is a sex crime. How dare you try to staircase or calibrate? That shows insensitivity toward the rights of the victims, the survivors. Well, the question, of course, in these cases, are they survivors? Are they victims or are they perpetrators? <clears throat> I have some personal experience in this. I was, not when I was at the university, but... I was accused, actually, I was accused of doing something while I was still teaching at Harvard. I was accused of having sex with a woman named Virginia Gouffray. I never met her. Never heard of her. Made up the whole story out of old whole cloth. And I proved it out of her own mouth because I had the power of subpoena. I proved it from her own emails. I proved it from her own admissions. I proved it from a surreptitiously recorded conversation with her Own lawyer who admitted she was wrong, simply wrong. I couldn't have been in the places she said I was. I found it from her own best friend who said she didn't want to accuse me. She had never heard of me, um, but she was coerced. She was pressured, was her word, into doing it by her lawyers. I had the ability to fight back, and I prevailed. I proved that my false accuser committed perjury. I I hope she will be prosecuted for perjury. In that case, I was the victim. She was the perpetrator. I am the survivor. She is the criminal. Uh, I'm not suggesting that happens frequently on college campuses. And college campuses, the issue is usually not so black and white. I'd never heard of her. I never met her. He raped me, etc. That's usually not the situation. The usual situation on college campuses are a man and a woman have a date. Uh, it ends up with sex. Um, the woman speaks to her friends, she says, you know, I didn't consent. Uh, The man says, I thought she consented. It's a gray area. It's a matter of degree. In those cases, even more so, you need to have confrontation, you need to have cross-examination, you need to have the ability to prove innocence, you need to have a presumption of innocence, and you need to have proof by more than a preponderance of the evidence. It's a rare case when a woman accuses a man... And the man plausibly says, I never heard of her, never met her. It's just a totally fake story. It happens. It happens all over the country. It happens all over the world. It happened to me. So I know about it, and I know how devastating it could be to a person's life and career. In my case, I had an established career. I had tenure. Couldn't be fired. She didn't accuse me, by the way, until after I left Harvard. I wish she had accused me while I was at Harvard so I could have had a process for proving my innocence. I called, wrote an op-ed saying, please, FBI, investigate me. I've called for a thorough investigation by everybody. But I wanted a fair investigation. Yes, every woman should be heard but not believed necessarily. You believe the evidence. You don't believe the man. You don't believe the woman. You don't believe self-serving statements by either side. You believe the evidence. You look at the totality of the evidence. You look at what happens after cross-examination. So that's the way the process ought to work. Obama abolished that process completely and turned universities into kangaroo courts. Insult to kangaroos. Worse than kangaroo courts. I mean, really turned it into the Soviet Union-China uh, Iran, uh, a man could not get a fear hearing at a university. And the worst part of it is, if the university had a hearing, even with the preponderance of the evidence and without cross-examination, and found the man innocent, that gets reported to the federal government, and the federal government looks at the university and says, you don't have a fair process. It's much. We're happier if you convict them than if you acquit them. If you start acquitting too many men, we'll cut off your federal funding. Imagine, that's not a thumb on the scale, that's an elbow on the scale of justice. And so universities set up these procedures where advocates and zealots become the judges, uh, and the advocates and zealots are on one side. They are always on the side of the accuser, on the side of the woman in most cases, and never on the side of the accused. The accuser often gets counsel, uh, but the accused does not, even if he can afford it. Lawyers are not allowed to come into the room. Lawyers are not allowed to help the person, even though he might lose his status as a student and, and be expelled from the school and not be able to be admitted to any other college or, or law school or university. The process was totally skewed against the accused and in favor of the accuser. The very words that were used, survivor, victim, You don't know if a person's a survivor or a victim until after the trial. That's Alice in Wonderland justice to call somebody a survivor. Maybe the falsely accused man is the survivor. Look, I want a fair process. I agree that a lot of women have been unfairly treated by universities in the past. Universities failed to take seriously allegations of sexual misconduct. They must take them seriously. Every woman's voice must be heard but not immediately believed without an opportunity for the accused person to present his evidence to see whether he should be believed. You don't have gender stereotypes like men lie, women tell the truth. No, some women lie, some women tell the truth, some men lie, some men tell the truth. In university contexts, it's often both sides are telling the truth. They just have a different truth. They remember it differently. Often the memory is fogged, fogged by alcohol. I had a university case. I can't get into it in detail because we eventually won the case. But it was very, very, very difficult going where both were drunk. Uh, there was a videotape of them getting out of an elevator with both of them completely drunk. And, and they had uh, sex. And, 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 and the issue was who initiated it? They were both drunk. Both of them were drunk. They were both young kids. They shouldn't have been having sex while they were drunk. They did it, both of them, in violation of university policies. But the question is, who was the victim, who was the perpetrator, or either one? Were they both victims? Were they both perpetrators? Uh, Those are the kinds of cases that come up frequently in universities. And the universities are in the best position to make judgments about how to deal with their own students. They don't need the heavy hand of the federal government coming in and telling every university that receives federal funding how to handle these cases. And so I hope that the Biden administration, and I've said right from the beginning, uh, I want to give Biden a chance. I want to give him an opportunity to prove himself. I don't mind that there is reconsideration of anything. Let there be reconsideration, but let there be a fair process. And let the end result be, let's hear from, let's have hearings Let's hear from people who have been falsely accused. Let's hear from people who have accused and haven't been heard seriously. And then let's give room, room for universities to make their own decisions. There's no reason why some federal bureaucracy should be telling Harvard Law School, which has a 100— professors who are pretty good lawyers, no reason for the federal government to be telling Harvard Law School, which has many feminist professors, many professors who are deeply concerned about the rights of women who are victimized, the rights of survivors, but also concerned about the rights of the accused. Harvard is better able to make that decision than the federal government. Ultimately, of course, if Biden changes the rules and goes back to the Obama administration, every case is going to end up in court. And under the Obama rules, many cases ended up in court, and many cases were thrown out. Courts have said, no, we can't tolerate a public university. Public universities are governed by the Constitution. We can't tolerate a public university expelling a student without an opportunity for him to present evidence, to cross-examine. We can't expect uh, a university to operate under the guidelines of the federal government, When those guidelines, the private student, of fundamental rights under the Constitution. So if the Biden administration foolishly goes back to the Obama administration's kangaroo court rules, we're going to have case after case after case coming into court, and the cases will hurt the people who have been genuinely victimized. It will hurt them as much as it will hurt the people who have been falsely accused. Everybody benefits from a fair process. The Obama administration's process was grievously unfair. Trump administration process, I think, was much, much fairer. Can you tweak it? Can the uh, Biden administration improve it and make it a little better? I have no problem with that. But they shouldn't fall into the trap of political correctness of saying, let's have a process where unless the woman wins, the university can lose its funding. And unless the process is so distorted against the accused, the university could lose its federal funding. That's not fair. That's not the American way. And I hope that uh, Joe Biden, who was the only president in my memory who was ever a criminal defense lawyer before he became a senator, he was actually a legal aid lawyer for a short period of time, to be sure, Uh, and his son was a prosecutor, but I would hope that Joe Biden would have a little bit of understanding. After all, he himself was accused of sexual misconduct, very, very, very serious sexual misconduct. On a scale of 10, what he was accused of was a 9. But he was not guilty. He was innocent. Uh, He was falsely accused. He should understand what it means to be falsely accused. He should put himself back to a time if he were a student. And a woman came and said, you did what this woman, Reed, claimed you did, and his defense was, no, I don't know her. She may have worked for me. I may have met her, but I didn't do that. You have to have a process for determining who's telling the truth. And that process must be complex and sophisticated and nuanced. We have hundreds of years of experience with how to find truth and how to conclude conflicts, how to resolve conflicts between accusers and accused. And we can't simply go back to the witchcraft trials. Uh, we can't go back to the Inquisition. We can't go back to previous episodes in our history, the Star Chamber. We have to base our legal systems in universities on our experience. And our experience teaches us presumption of innocence, opportunity to challenge, cross-examination, opportunity to be represented if you are inarticulate or unable to marshal the uh, evidence. Uh, Both sides having a fair opportunity to present their cases. So I'm hoping that the Biden administration has more sense than the Obama administration. Now, of course, Biden was in the Obama administration. He was part and parcel of the process that brought about these horrendous results for colleges and universities. But we've learned a lot Uh, since that time. And I hope that the Biden administration includes in its review some people who are civil libertarians, not the ACLU. No, 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 they'll come out on the wrong side of this. Uh, Not uh, organizations that are one-sidedly in support of women all the time, no matter what the facts are. Not institutions that say believe women, don't believe men. But people who have had experience in dealing with these complex issues on campus, again, The issues are generally not, I never met the person, I didn't know him. Uh, The issues are generally, yeah, we went out, we had sex, we drank. Um, I don't exactly remember what happened. Uh, She says, I don't think I consented. He says, I understood your actions and words to be consent. That's the kind of case that we have to have a process for resolving. They're very, very difficult cases. But the presumption of innocence and the requirement of process is key. It was the great Justice Felix Frankfurter who once said the history of liberty, for the most part, is a history of process, a history of due process, a history of fairness. That's what the Biden administration needs to do. I'm interested in your views, especially if any of you have been either victims of either a sexual assault or a false accusation or know people who have been victims either of a sexual assault or a false allegation. Um, I want to hear from you. I want to hear from your experiences. I want to hear what you think. Do you think the Obama administration had it right? Do you think the Trump administration had it right? And if you were advising the Biden administration and wanted to get it right, what kind of a process would you put in place? So let's hear from you on The Dirt Show. Now for my favorite part of the show, the wits from the Dershow, the callers. First caller. Hello, Professor Dershowitz. This is Barbara from New
1: Jersey. I just watched your podcast on the royal family and Meghan and Harry's interview. As soon as Oprah kicked off the interview, she made it clear that Harry and Meghan did not get paid. For the interview, however, if you do some research on the Internet, you find out that they did receive $7 million through some kind of a licensing deal. So I thought that was an outright lie, incredibly deceptive to the viewers, and definitely changes um, you know, your perspective on things. And I was just wondering, ethically, morally, um, legally, can Oprah just sit down and kick off the interview with a huge lie to the viewers? And thank you so much for your perspective on all things. This was not a legal issue, but we, we I, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of everyone, but I certainly enjoyed your point of view on um, this issue. Thank you so much.
0: Uh, thanks. Of course, we live in a world where everything's a legal issue and the, the difference between legal and other political moral uh, has evaporated. I think the facts are as follows. At least this is my understanding. They did not get paid directly. That is, uh, Harry and Meghan didn't get paid directly. But uh, I think the network paid 7 or $8 million for the right to show the Oprah interview. So Oprah got paid for conducting the interview, or her company, Harpo, got paid for conducting the interview, but the money didn't go to Meghan and Harry directly. But I think you have a point. They certainly benefited uh, from uh, the interview. If they weren't paid in cash, I'm sure Netflix is sitting there very happy saying, we just paid these guys a million dollars or more, uh, many millions of dollars, for their great brilliance and insight into what movies we should have and what we should produce. And, And Oprah certainly helps us get a return on her investment. So, you know, people get paid in different ways. Um, I believe, if I'm told by Oprah, that Megan and Harry were not paid in cash for the interview, but were they paid in kind, that's worth looking into.
2: This is my second call into the show. Mr. Dershowitz, my name is Jeff. I'm from Orlando, Florida. You still aren't addressing my question. I had asked how it is that you had decided that Trump didn't have enough evidence that you felt that way, which is you have a right to feel any way you want, and that's part of the Constitution. But my point is that you don't know any more about whether there's enough evidence than I do about I think there's enough evidence. And I could be wrong. And that not that the reason that we have a court? Isn't that what the court decides? Was there enough evidence to prove this person guilty or not guilty? And not that what the point of the court looking at it is? And other people making the decision that, oh, that's not enough evidence i don't think there's enough i don't think ever should apply in a court case what you you know i don't think I think it should be proven one way or the other there was there wasn't and that's why the co- the country hasn't come together that is the single most separating issue in the united states of america right now in my opinion and that be yours but that's my opinion and i think it's something we need to deal with just to
0: put the people's minds at ease the evidence thanks very much <clears throat> I completely agree with you. I don't think anybody could know for certainty whether there was um, fraud or enough mistakes to change the, the outcome. It doesn't seem to me there was enough, but that's based on, you're right, incomplete evidence. That's why I've said over and over again two things. One, I wish the courts had taken the case. I think the Supreme Court should have taken the Texas and Pennsylvania case. I think some of the lower courts should have had hearings. Let the American people see what the evidence is. And number two, uh, remember, I have said right from the beginning, I want a voter integrity panel, a VIP, where objective, neutral people, former justices, judges, university presidents, ministers, rabbis, and priests, uh, scientists, technologists, can look at the evidence and tell the American public in a way that the American public trusts. Today, the American public doesn't trust what they hear on CNN They don't trust what they hear on Fox. They say, oh, CNN's point of view, that's one point of view. Fox, that's another point of view. There's no Walter Cronkite that sits in judgment, and we accept their conclusion. So I'm completely on your side. We need to have a process. I completely agree with you that this is what divides America more than anything else, and I would hope that a voter integrity panel would do that. The courts have abdicated their responsibility. What they've said is we don't want to jump into the political Uh, thicket there may be some cases coming up that will help resolve some of these issues but without a voter integrity panel I just think we're going to go down the rabbit hole for many many years in which almost half the country believes the election was stolen and the other half of the country slightly more than half believes the election uh, was fair and I think an agnostic point of view that says, "Look, the burden of proofs on anybody who wants to undo an election." I don't think the burden has been satisfied on the basis of what I've heard, but I haven't heard everything. So I want to hear more. Let's have opportunities for the full issue to be aired in a way that's so credible that, if not all Americans, the vast majority of Americans will believe the conclusion, whichever way it comes out. So I'm on your side on this issue.
3: Hi, professor. My name is Rachel Glynn. I'm in Philadelphia. My question has to do with the upcoming trial of Derek Chauvin uh, in the death of George Floyd. I'm wondering, how in the world will there ever be a fair trial? Uh, There's such um, a fear of violence and potential for riots uh, that uh, I wonder how you'd ever get a a fair jury uh, who wouldn't be afraid uh, to acquit, uh, and if, the, if somehow if he got acquitted, uh, I think his life is in danger. Uh, and maybe if the jury were to acquit, I think their lives could be in danger too. And if I were being grilled for a spot on the jury, I wouldn't want to be asked questions about my opinions about Black Lives Matter, defunding the police, uh, or any of those kind of things. And moreover, if he's uh, convicted uh, in this climate of fear, then wouldn't that lead to a conviction being easily overturned because it wasn't a fair trial? Mm -hmm. I'd like to know what you think. Thank you.
0: A great, great question. I agree with you. I think it's going to be very, very difficult for him to get uh, a fair trial. Look, I saw the video, and I certainly uh, think what happened based on what I saw in the video was absolutely unjustified, but I don't know the whole story, and I want to hear the whole story, and it's up to the jury, ultimately, to make that decision. You're absolutely right. I think jurors would be terrified of voting to acquit. And I think for two reasons. Number one, their own lives might be in danger. Number two, they might see violence uh, in the community. We did see violence. We have seen historically violence sometimes when verdicts have been very, very unpopular. Uh, we've, uh, in the South, we saw lynchings when verdicts were unpopular. Um, in the case of Leo Frank, the only Jew ever lynched um, in the South um, after he was convicted by a totally biased jury, the governor came to the conclusion that he uh, that there were doubts about his his guilt or innocence, and and the um, uh, governor commuted his sentence from from death to life imprisonment. And a violent crowd broke into his jail cell and lynched him, hanged him, and killed him. Uh, we know we have a history of this on all sides of the political spectrum, and so there would be great fear. There are there are tactics that courts can use to try to minimize the dangers, but they don't always work either. For example, anonymous jurors. You have cases, particularly mafia cases, in New York where the federal courts have required that the juries be anonymous. The newspapers don't learn their names. Nobody learns their names. Nobody learns their addresses. But there's a problem with that. Um, when, when you have an anonymous jury, it sends a message to the jurors themselves that their lives are in danger, and in in the mafia cases it sends a message that the mafia is guilty and they're going to kill you. Here it might send a different message, but nonetheless it will send the message. We're not going to have a perfect trial uh, in that case, Um, but you're going to need a really good and creative judge. Change a venue, try to get people who have never heard of this case. It's going to be hard, and the more you disqualify people who know a little bit about the case— the more likely you are to get jurors who really don't read uh, newspapers or are not interested in what's going on in public. That's the kind of jury you probably need for a case like this. Not going to be easy. I don't envy the judge who sits on the case. You talk about appellate reversals. You know, courts of appeals reverse criminal convictions less than 5% of the cases. In some jurisdictions, less than 1% of the cases. Appellate remedies aren't easily Uh, available, particularly in a case like this where you have uh, very, very great public interest. And uh, if I were the appellate lawyer in the case, I wouldn't have a lot of optimism that an appellate court, especially if the judges were elected or if you had judges even who were appointed and want to get promoted, uh, a judge who reverses a conviction like this might find their career at an end. So uh, it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who correctly said, In this case, at least he was right. Hard cases make bad law. And I think cases where the public feels passionately and understandably passionately in this case about the horrific thing that happened uh, to this uh, victim, it's going to be hard to have uh, a fair trial. And so stay tuned. Let's keep watching this trial, and I'll give you my views as to whether it emerges as fair or not.
2: Hi, my name is Stephen Rasky from San Diego, California. Um, my question is this. Many state governments have locked down businesses like in California, uh, businesses were not able to conduct business. Can businesses who were forcibly locked down sue under the state and or federal takings clause? Thank you. Please respond as soon as you can.
0: Oh, what a great question. You get an A-plus in, in creativity. Um, the takings clause of the Constitution requires that two things before some property can be taken. Number one, there has to be a public interest. It can't be taking property from A to help B if B is not the public interest in the government. The courts have fiddled around with what public interest means, but there has to be a public interest. And second, there has to be just compensation. That's in the Constitution of the United States. And so um, there are going to be cases challenging the closings uh, based on a taking. The court... The courts generally rule that if it's a generalized rule designed to protect the public health, it is not a taking. It's uh, action under the police power of the Constitution. But there are going to be challenges. There are going to be cases. And we'll see whether or not uh, any of the courts rule that making a particular business close down is a taking that requires just compensation.
2: Hello, Professor Dershowitz. Uh, My name is Mike. I live in San Diego. Uh, I'm a great admirer of yours, and I only recently discovered the Dershow, and I love it, and I try to watch it every day. Uh, And I thank you for all that you uh, teach to everybody uh, through this program. I've always wanted to ask you about... Uh, the Pfizer court uh, both the general and specifically uh, in general what do you think about the court uh, its mission and how it operates and specifically I'd like to ask you what do you think would be the consequences of there being no consequences for the misrepresentations that were presented to the court in order uh, to the furtherance of the Russia hoax thank you very much for for your answer
0: A great question. I am not a fan of the FISA court. I don't like ex-party proceedings. Ex-party means only one side presents. And the people on the FISA court are picked by the chief justice, and they generally represent uh, people who are more concerned about national security than civil liberties. There's one clear cure for the problems of the FISA court today. That is, the FISA court must create a devil's advocate. Catholic Church has a devil's advocate before somebody can be named a saint the Church appoints somebody to make the argument against sainthood um, so that both sides are presented. The Talmud says, going back 2,000 years, if a person is sentenced to death without the opposing side being heard, if it's too quick, if it happens without consideration overnight, and if it's unanimous, the person has to get a new trial. Uh, But that's not the rule in the FISA court. In the FISA court, only one side is presented. If you had a devil's advocate, a group of three lawyers, appointed to be defense attorneys on the court, they would get security clearance, the same level of security clearance that the people on the other side get. They would have access to all the information, and they would be able to argue against giving out the warrant. That would solve the problem. It's an easy, easy, cheap cure. And the problem we saw with the FISA court, where they were totally misled, would never have occurred. Because if the evidence were presented to a defense attorney, to a devil's advocate, the defense attorney would have seen the flaws in the affidavits, would have brought them to the attention of the FISA court, and the FISA court never would have issued that warrant. So there's an easy fix, but I haven't gotten any traction for this idea. I would love to see Congress pass a statute allocating funds that would be relatively inexpensive, assigning three Washington lawyers with histories of civil liberties, commitment to uh, basic values of justice to represent the people who are the subject of a warrant and present the opposite point of view, the devil's advocate point of view, to the visa court, which would then be better informed and make fewer mistakes. What do you think of that solution? Give me some calls. Uh, um, give me your comments. Uh, I love to hear your comments. The wits on the dirt show is the most important part of the show. So keep the calls coming. Keep telling your friends if you like the show about the show. Subscribe. Ask them to subscribe. And keep listening and watching the DIRS show. An important part of The dir Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short, and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.